Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. Welcome to the December All In for Citrus podcast. I am your host, Taylor Hillman. We have a great episode today with critical insights on citrus production. First, we talk about the contract issue that growers are seeing, which is really the lack thereof issue. And we get some insight from a recent trip to Brazil and how they continue to manage Huang Lung Bing disease. We also touch base on some soil research, both an update on a current project and an announcement on a brand new trial that was just approved. And finally, we'll get a reminder about a long time weather tool that a lot of growers are still very much using. Let's get right to it. And for that, we'll start things off with our correspondent at large, Ernie Neff. Hello, I'm Ernie Neff, and I'm with Michael Rogers, Director of the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alfred. Welcome back, Michael. Thank you, Ernie. Michael, the latest crop report we've been seeing or forecast shows that the industry is hanging in there on production. I think about 74 million boxes of oranges. They increased the grapefruit to 4.9 million boxes. And compared to last year, that's a 3% increase in oranges and a 9% increase in grapefruit. Uh, Yes, Ernie, and that's definitely good news for our industry. Um, I think it, it shows that um, we've come a long way since HLB came into Florida we, when we're learning how to live with this disease and, and how to manage it better to increase our yields. But um, as everybody's aware, we've got a new problem that our growers are facing right now, and, and that has to do with um, inventory, juice inventory, and, and uh, an oversupply, and it's pushing our prices down. And this is weighing particularly heavy on growers right now. There's a number of growers throughout the state that don't have contracts. And um, so they're looking at cash markets, and there's there's some rumors out there right now, some very low cash prices for growers. Those who could get it. So for the growers who don't have contracts, and I've heard several of them say they've had no offers at all, uh, they have some very difficult decisions going forward on how to best spend their money managing groves, right? Absolutely. It's definitely a tough situation, and, and I've had some folks ask me very directly, you know, for advice on what to do and and I have to tell them you know I can't provide financial advice I'm probably the wrong person to be asking but but as a researcher um, what I can tell you is what we know about HLB and and that is if you're committed to staying in citrus in the long term you cannot stop managing your groves um, it takes it's taken us a long time to get to where we are have our groves productive a lot of that's come through advances in our nutrition management programs and if you just think about what growers have had to do to get here, you know, when they start, they started changing their nutrition plans. Uh, you don't see those results or effects immediately. It takes a couple of years for the trees to respond and, and, and for the, the health to improve and the yields to come back. And so the decisions you make right now in the groves um, are going to have an impact uh, for your future year uh, yields in the future. So, um, if, for example, if, if a grower were to uh, cut back too much on nutrition or things like that, we could see the trees totally crash. Or the reversal in tree health might be uh, such that it, it takes another couple of years to, to get those trees back into productivity. And so um, that, that's a, something to think about. And also, it takes time to get the fruit quality as well once you put the trees on the nutrition program. We've seen our yields go up around the state. Fruit quality is something we're still struggling with. 
Uh, we've been tweaking nutrition programs, and we're seeing uh, some beneficial responses um, in terms of, of improved fruit quality because of these nutrition programs. But that also will suffer um, when there's too much cutbacks made. So how does a grower decide how much money to spend and on what grove management practices? So I've gotten that question a lot, Ernie, and um, you know, over the past couple of years it's been a question I've, I've been asked, but um, probably a lot more so recently. And I've even had some growers ask me questions more specifically. Okay, if I were to spend $2,000 an acre or $1,500 an acre, um, how do I divide that money up? Why do I, how much do I spend on each of my practices? And that's something we really can't answer. We can't give specific dollar amounts um, because across the board, you know, growers' operations, they have different costs. It, it costs growers different amounts to buy fertilizer, to apply it, to, to spray for psyllids or whatever. So all the grove needs are going to be different, and the cost that each grower have has is going to be different. And so they're going to really have to think about fine-tuning management practices to the specific grove situation. And again, keeping in mind that you know financial constraints are going to vary grower by grower. My guess is most growers know what their break-even price is and at least have some starting point to begin their budget planning? Yeah, I think, I think most growers do know what they're, what they're shooting for. And um, actually, to help with that decision-making process, um, our citrus economist, uh, Dr. Ariel Singerman, has just written an article um, entitled, How Much Can Growers Afford to Spend on Caretaking of Their Groves? And it, it, that article is focused just on this particular situation we're in right now where we're seeing these, these low cash prices and growers without contracts. Um, and so in this article, um, he includes something I thought was really very useful, a tool, uh, was a table that shows on one column it shows, okay, the amount you spend per acre, and then across the top you have the, the, the price, the fruit prices, a range of fruit prices. And you can come across the table, and based on the amount spent and the fruit price, it's going to tell you what you need in terms of boxes per acre to break even. And you can work that backwards. You can say, okay, I know what my yields are, here's my price, how much should I spend or, you know, to help determine how much should you be cutting costs to, to break even? And so this is going to be a very uh, helpful tool, I think, as growers move forward in the coming year um, and plan, make plans for next year to figure out um, how they need to adjust their budgets in terms of, of how much to spend. We were going to have this come out in print, but because it's such a timely thing for, for growers to have a look at, um, a Southeast Agnet is going to put this article online so growers can get it quicker. And so sometime during the later in the month of December of 2019, this article will be online at Southeast Agnet, and I'm sure we will all be uh, uh, getting the word out to growers to be on the lookout for that once it's online so they can have a look. Um, so, but in general, as growers are thinking about spending, you know, how they're going to spend uh, money in the coming year, I, th I think the one thing that's going to be most important is to think about uh, your specific grove situation, uh, making sure that you're meeting the needs of, of the individual grove. Um, there are some fixed costs that you uh, are going to have to account for, taxes, insurance, things like that. But of the things that you should prioritize, um, the top of the list is going to be nutrient and water management. And we've talked a lot about that over the past um, several six or eight months. And it, it's what you're doing with the nutrient and water that's really what's keeping the, the groves alive and maintaining their health. And this should absolutely be the number one consideration for growers. And so you want to ask yourself, am, am I doing enough um, in terms of my nutrient water management? Or maybe at the opposite end, maybe I'm doing too much. And are there, are there places I can cut cost? And the one thing I'd just caution folks is if you're looking at cutting back, especially on something like a nutrition program, 
um, you want to make sure you're paying attention to what you're doing and how it's affecting the grove. So I think it's important um, to be doing uh, things like your, your soil and leaf and nutrient analysis um, to see, okay, as you're making changes, how is it affecting the, the plant health status uh, to make sure that you're still able to keep, keep the trees productive and give them what they need. You know, when HLB first broke out, Silid management was probably the most important thing on many people's minds. Where does silid, and then many backed off, Michael, uh, some on silid control as it became endemic HLB throughout the industry. Where does silid management fall into the ranking now of where to spend money? Yeah, um, there's been a lot of work done looking at, okay, once we've got all of our trees are infected with HLB, is it still important to control psyllids? And, and Dr. Lucas Delinsky's done a lot of work, um, and Phil Stansley uh, previously as well, um, showing that there is still value controlling psyllids, but we probably don't need to be spraying as much as we have in the past. And some of the most recent work from Dr. Stolinsky showed that um, three to four applications a year actually, in terms of cost effectiveness, was, was better than spraying 10 or 12 times a year. And so what I think growers need to be thinking about is um, uh, when you're going to be uh, planning for controlling psyllids, um, think about the whole idea of multi-targeting of pests that we talked about years ago when HLB first got here. Um, if there's other things you're going to be doing in the grove, uh, you know, combine your psyllid control with that to help cut cost. Um, choose products that can tr- control multiple pests, target pests at one time. Um, but again, we're, we, you know, there are ways to make cuts in those psyllid management costs, or yeah, those costs, and, um, and still uh, stay productive. Michael, to wrap it up, what's your bottom line advice for growers who are looking to cut costs? Well, I think the positive thing is that there are ways to cut costs in the short term and keep productive you know, into the future. Um, but again, it's, it, it's been difficult uh, the past 14 years of our industry has been difficult, and it's just getting more difficult, and, and it's going to require a lot more attention to what's going on in the grove and basing decisions on what's most important for your grove situation. And I just as tell growers I've talked to, you really got to know now what your grove needs and make sure that your trees are getting it. And focus on nutrition and water. Absolutely. Michael, thanks. Thank you, Ernie. Ernie, thanks for the update with Dr. Michael Rogers. I appreciate it. We're now going to go to Dr. Johnny Ferrarizzi at the Indian River Research and Extension Center. We're talking today about uh, a trip that you were able to take this year to Brazil. Uh, you went with a with a colleague. What was the goal of the trip that you ended up taking? Steve Fletch and I went to Brazil to explore the uh, status of the citrus production over there. Um, seeing different regions uh, where HLB was um, predominant uh, at the center of the state. And then we moved a little bit south too uh, to uh, see how the incidence of the disease was and how the growers were um, controlling uh, the psyllid and the disease over there too. So from what we were talking about beforehand, um, you were a little a little surprised the fact that the trees looked good, especially Valencia's, correct? That's correct. Their uh, disease incidence is um, way lower than in Florida. Uh, so uh, the last year was about 19%. And uh, that really makes a difference how trees look and how they're holding the crop. And um, that uh, really uh, made evident in some regions where 
we saw uh, several boxes per tree, five or six um, per tree. And uh, that was really uh, impressive, um, particularly because of the uh, impact the disease is having in our industry here in Florida. One of the things that uh, you talked about with their management um, over there is uh, aggressively eradicating the tree and then treating borders, right? I mean, that's the system they're looking at? Exactly. Uh, So they still have the policy to eradicate um, infected trees. So they flag trees in the field and um, as soon as they um, identify the symptoms and remove it, so that's uh, really um, one important aspect of their uh, management strategy. And um, on top of that, they um, do a very heavy um, spraying on the borders in order to reduce the solid movement inside the grove. And um, also uh, do what they call external actions, where um, particularly large companies, they spray um, abandoned groves or areas where um, the existing growers cannot manage properly in order to avoid the silage to get into their uh, own uh, farms. Does it seem like that is that management is is working or slowing the spread? Yes, it is. Um, uh, different companies. Uh, showed uh, their um, results. So basically, they um, slowed down the disease progression and they uh, usually treat about uh, two to 300 feet uh, from uh, the property line. And um, they uh, see the disease getting um, confined on the, uh, on the edges and um, it slows down the disease progression it had been working very well for them due to their um, environmental conditions. Um, so they have a certain um, um, landscape differences, climate differences, uh, soil differences too that um, really uh, make uh, the external actions um, efficient on controlling the uh, field movement. If they're focusing on the borders like that, I know that's something they're doing in California as well. That can actually save the grower some money in the long run, depending on the situation. You are absolutely right. Um, They control the insect and they uh, actually uh, spray in the regions where the incidence is higher, reducing the cost. And um, that had been successful and um, they are actually implementing wide areas with that approach. All of that had been led by uh, Funda Citrus in a very aggressive program that they have. Even though the environment is, is a lot different than, than it is in Florida, um, definitely some, some practices and some management and some stuff they're doing over there that we can take from, right? I mean, th- there is stuff we can learn from this. Yes, um, I think... The um, the fact that um, a very aggressive uh, early control of the vector uh, play a role um, in slowing down the disease progression. So this is definitely something important for California, for example, um, where the disease is not spread out 
um, also um, when you consider um, our um, condition here, uh, something important is to properly manage the grove. So we visited areas where they are uh, adding organic matter, where they are um, improving the uh, nutritional programs by uh, applying um, higher uh, rates of certain uh, micronutrients. That's um, a, a take-home message that uh, we should improve the way we manage our growth if we wanted to actually stay in business. I believe one of the most important uh, lessons was that um, even though areas where the disease incidence is high, they still profitable in business because they still managing their trees while um, the um, research community uh, is looking for uh, solutions for the problem. That is good to see. I'm glad I'm glad we can see that in other areas as well. So managing, keeping the trees as healthy as possible and staying in business, even though the disease is very prevalent. Absolutely. Um, uh, along those lines, they are also uh, releasing uh, Tamarixia radiata in order to uh, con uh, try to use some uh, biological control. And um, those approaches combined, they uh, help the industry to um, continue generating the revenue that we are seeing. So their um, numbers for uh, this season um, are quite high, even though they are on um, a high uh, productive year in comparison to um, the previous season. Sounds like a very educational trip. Dr. Ferrarizzi, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to describe uh, this trip. So uh, we do have an article that was just released that provide uh, a little bit more detailed information about their production, uh, acreage, varieties, and other important aspects of this uh, educational trip that we took. And uh, this had been um, a uh, trip that uh, Dr. Steve Futch repeated, I think, in the last 20 years, taking several uh, Floridians to uh, learn more about the Brazilian production. And I hope that um, I can uh, continue that tradition and take um, other growers to go and explore uh, their um, production system and perhaps learn more about it and bring it to uh, here and help us um, succeeding. Very good. Thank you, sir. All right. Appreciate it very much. So now we're going from more international soils to local soils as we touch base with UF IFAS soil microbiologist, Sarah Strauss. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Let's quickly just give us a, a review of what you're focusing on, and then we'll talk about some of the projects you have going on. But but what are you focusing on uh, in your research efforts? So my research as a soil microbiologist focuses on trying to understand the interactions between the microbes in the soil and citrus, uh, in this case. Um, there's a lot that we still don't understand about not only just what microbes are in the soil, um, but also how they interact with citrus plants, um, how they interact with other plants in the system, um, and what are those different factors that are controlling those microbes. And ultimately, what we would like to do are find ways that 
um, can utilize microbes to help citrus plants grow. Yeah, you're looking at improving um, the health of the plants, adding some um, nutrient food sources to the soil, all that kind of stuff. Correct. You got it. So one of the big things that you're looking into is cover crops. This is something that we've covered um, in in lots of different industries. Uh, and that's one of the research projects that you've got going. Uh, how's that looking? Yes, this is one that I'm particularly excited about. Um, we've got funding from CRDF, um, myself, Dr. Davey Kadi-Kenny, um, Dr. Rhonda Kanisari, and Dr. Tara Wade um, and I are all looking at trying to get some quantifiable or quantified data on how cover crops might be impacting uh, citrus uh, and, and citrus health and production potentially. Um, and so we've got a decently sized scale project. We've got two different locations at a commercial citrus grower down uh, here in Southwest Florida, where we are looking at um, mixes of cover crops. Um, some of those mixes include legumes, which are nitrogen fixers, and some of them don't. Um, and then also combining those treatments with um, this idea of eco mowing or reverse mowing, it's sometimes called, where when things are mowed, the clippings are spit out underneath the canopy rather than just in the middle. And then this would be an idea and a potential way to also increase um, plant material to that soil. Uh, and so for citrus, you know, one of the main reasons we're looking at this is we're trying to look at ways to increase and build up soil organic matter and soil health and provide, as you said, food for those microbes. Um, and so whether that is these clippings that are going underneath the canopy, whether it is cover crops, um, all of those are methods that might, might enhance that microbial activity, which could then improve nutrient retention, water retention, um, and all of those can potentially have benefits to the citrus tree. So I'm, I'm familiar with some of the mixes that uh, different industries are looking at. You mentioned legumes, which are, you know, help with nitrogen. Uh, what are some of the other plants in those mixes that you're looking at? So we're looking at a whole slew of things. Um, and this is part of part of the both excitement and um, and importance, I think, and slight frustration with this project is that, as you mentioned, a lot of research has been done on cover crops for other systems, and a lot of has been done in the Midwest with cereal crops, um, you know, and cotton and soybean and, and those things, even in other places in the South. Um, but trying to find crops that work well in South Florida and work well year-round, which is not something that other, um, other agronomic crops have to deal with, has been a little tricky. Um, and so we're testing all sorts of mixes. Um, for legumes, we've looked at cowpeas, um, some different vetches, crimson clover. Um, for non-legumes, we've been looking at rye, um, buckwheat, um, some millets, barley. Uh, it's, a, it's been a, a big mix of things. Um, and so some of that depends on what we're trying to ideally tailor what we plant with the time of year. Um, yeah, that has some differences here in Florida still, uh, and and a lot of those differences also depend on on you know the rain and the moisture and and what species are more tolerant of those different conditions. Um, but this is still very much a work in progress of trying to figure out what are the optimal mixes um, and when are the optimal times to plant them. Yeah. Definitely. You guys also got uh, some recent funding to look at some compost, right? Yes. Yeah, so um, Dr. Uta Albrecht and I got uh, another CRDF project going um, uh, just in the last uh, month or so um, to uh, do a large-scale trial looking at uh, compost application for new citrus plantings. And so 
uh, you know, compost and cover crops are basically the two things that come up in conversation the most frequently, I think, when we're talking about trying to improve soil organic matter, uh, particularly here in Florida. Um, but there still is a surprisingly not as much quantitative scientific data on compost um, and Florida citrus as, as I think some of us thought there might be. Um, and so we wanted to look at um, not just the impacts of, of applying compost at a new planting, but also what is the interaction with different rootstocks. And so Dr. Albrecht is, uh, specializes in, in some of these rootstock um, uh, traits. And so looking at um, if you've got rootstocks that have different um, vigor you know, characteristics, um, how does that interact with applying additional compost? And so, and then I will, of course, be looking at the microbial interactions as well. That's very interesting. So you guys will be able to, because I think some people look at research as a as a blanket kind of cover sometimes. And when you're using different rootstocks, I mean, that really like identifies exactly what the grower's using. Um, so it's specific to them. That's that's the plan. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many questions that we have just from general science, but we also want to hone in on, on those questions that are going to be most applicable to growers right now. Very good. Sarah, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And we will touch base with you again to see how those are going. Sounds good. Always happy to share. Now we head back out to Ernie Neff to get an update on the Winter Weather Watch program. I'm with Chris Oswalt, a multi-county citrus extension agent. Chris, what counties do you cover? Well, right now my official counties are Polk and Hillsborough counties, but I'm also doing some interim work for Hardy, DeSoto, Manatee, and Sarasota until such time as we get a replacement down in those counties. Let's talk a little about Winter Weather Watch. I believe it's begun. Tell us what it is. Well, Winter Weather Watch is a program that the Extension Service has put on probably continuously since about 1960s, the mid-1960s. It's a program that, that really came about to address some issues in as much as getting agricultural interests, the ag weather forecast from the National Weather Service. Back at that time, the situation was such that in order to get a forecast, at least the agricultural forecast, most of your TV and radio stations didn't necessarily do that. Some of the AM stations may have done ag weather. But there really wasn't an outlet where you could go and get that. We didn't have the Internet. And the easiest way that that information typically came out was on a teletype machine. So then now you're talking about having a teletype machine. So it was kind of difficult unless you had a relationship where you could call the National Weather Service and get those forecasts that they were sometimes hard to come about, at least easily accessible. So this program kind of evolved as a way to address that need. And the need was addressed by those National Weather Service forecasts that came out, the ag forecast, would then be released. And then the county extension agent at the time that was doing the Winter Weather Watch program would take that information and provide it on a recorded announcement that growers could call up on the phone and they could get the you know, the ag weather forecast basically any time they wanted it because they just call on a phone line. And, of course, for... Citrus growers, the big issue is freezes in the winter time, right? That's correct. And this program helped keep growers ahead of that curve, so to speak, to let them know what was potentially happening. And they were forecast specifically, specifically for ag areas, not the urban areas like where you typically get a, a temperature from a town that may be at the airport. These weren't necessarily geared forecast geared for those types of situations, but more of the ag outlying rural areas where those forecasts were more applicable to growers. So it was a way to get them that information. Our program starts November the 15th. It runs through March the 15th. It's uh, four months long, 
And what I try to do is provide those ag weather forecasts, basically the National Weather Service forecasts. They're not ag forecasts anymore because they quit doing that in 1996. But they are specifically the zone forecasts that provide the basic information about what is occurring in as much as weather the next day or two. And I'll put those out every day for those four months. Growers can call in. They can get that information. We provide them educational materials that help them interpret the forecast, what it means. And then that information they can use to better do a, better protect their crops from freezing temperatures. This is not available statewide. This is available where? Yes, it's limited in geographical area because my particular expertise in as much as doing this is in Polk and Hillsboro. Uh, we also have, we do the forecast or put out the forecast for Pasco, Hardy, DeSoto, Highlands, Inland, Collier, Glades, Henry County, Charlotte, and Lee County. So, so it's, it's basically west, central, and southwest Florida. How much does this cost, growers? Well, my subscription fee for those four months is $100 for the four months. Are there some alerts with this or just they uh, access this online? What? Okay, they access this through a phone line. They're recorded um, daily. We have a schedule for what forecasts we put out at what times, depending on whether there's a freeze watch or a minimum temperature predicted in the morning forecast. If it's below 32, I'll do an update at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We have a meteorologist that we have um, that helps us, consults with us, and helps us with those forecasts. Any information that he has to provide us, in addition to the National Weather Service forecast, he provides that to us, and we provide that to growers to give them a better idea of and describe what the situation may be in any freeze event. You're not in competition with fawn on this cold weather information, are you, or are you? Oh, no, not at all with fawn. Fawn is our partner, so to speak, in this. They actually have the real-time weather data that they collect from the fawn weather stations. We basically provide the forecast and the information on what to do if you have freezing temperatures. Those fawn towers provide you a glimpse into what is occurring overnight. How close is it to what we, you know, what the National Weather Service forecast that we record, what it has as far as predictions, and then you get to see real time what's occurring out in the field with the fawn towers. So we're really partners in this, um, so to speak. Um, we're not part of fawn specifically, but fawn is a tool that we have that we can ground truth the forecast as it occurs. So a lot of guys probably use your winter weather watch and fawn in the same day, right? Oh, most definitely. We would hope that they would because National Weather Service, as good as their forecasts are, and they're very good today, um, nowadays, you still want to have that local information to see how close they are to the actual conditions you have. And even if you have your own weather stations, you'll have this information. And I think one of the good things about the weather services forecast is that they will be consistent. It will be a consistent source of weather information on minimum temperature predictions that typically will not change because of the way they do the forecast. So it's going to be consistent. So if you know that a temperature in Bartow, which may be at the airport, is going to be 32 and you're in Alturas and you know you're in a hole. So when it's 32 at the airport, it's 28 in your grove. And you have to make those site-specific adjustments 
but you're going to get a consistent forecast from the Weather Service when you call our Winter Weather Watch and additional information. Approximately how many people participate in this, growers? Typically, we have anywhere from, um, we've had minimum of 20 or so growers up to, in some years, up to 75. And people can still get in it for this season at any time? Yes, they can. Um, it's a flat rate fee. If you come in early, you get the full four months. If you come in late, you're going to get the balance of the four months. Um, I think it's for what we do. We really just try to cover the costs associated with providing you with this information in a format that's easily accessible. If someone's interested in uh, signing up, they'll uh, get in touch with you? Uh, Yes, you can get in touch with me. Probably the easiest way to do that would be to call my office number in Bartow. It's 863-519-1052. Anything you'd like to add about Winter Weather Watch? Not Winter Weather Watch, but I'd just like to remind growers that this season... The El Nino conditions are neutral, and neutral winters are typically when we've had our most devastating freezes, so don't forget to keep an eye on the weather this winter. We want to say thanks to all of the researchers for making time for this episode today. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to be notified when a new episode is published. And if you like what you heard today, share it with a friend or colleague. Again, thanks for joining us today, and happy holidays to you and your family. We'll be back in the next decade for another episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.